Hola, this is Enrique Morones with Gente Unida and Magnificent Mujer. And we, Gente Unida with Sarah Bella, our producer, and yours truly, Enrique Morones, are glad to bring you another wonderful, wonderful, and very magnificent Mujer. Somebody that if you don't know, you should know. She's a dear friend. She's uh, been very active with Gente Unida, working with streamers, working with students for over 10 years in education. And her name is Yad Yadi Ortiz. Yadi, bienvenida a Magnificent Mujer. How are you? Thank you, Enrique. Thank you. I'm doing well, you know, as best as we could, as best as, um, you know, we all can right now with everything that's going on. Um, probably locally, nationally, um, um, worldwide, you know, there's so many things going on. So I think we're all trying as much as we can to stay afloat and stay positive and stay healthy. Yes. And your name, Yadira. Yadira, that's a beautiful name. Where does the name come from? Well, it's an interesting story, actually. My mom... Um, and my dad had a very big fight about my name. My dad wanted to call me Andrea. My mom wanted to call me um, actually Shakira when I was born. And my dad was like, no, que es eso, right? And so my grandmother actually came up with the name. And as far as they've told me, I don't know if it's true, it, they took it from um, the Bible. And it's the female version of Yahid. Oh, and so that's, that's, that's what I've been told. Uh -huh. and so, yeah. Well, so that's where it comes from. It's a beautiful name. And is, is it true that you came up with the saying, yada, yada, ya? Is that one of your sayings? Did you come up with that? No, but it's not the first time I hear it. Um, growing up, oh, yeah. Growing up, teachers, teachers and students yodeled to my name. Um, that was very, very common. Uh, and so, yes, I'm kind of used to it by now. Oh, good. And as you may have heard on Magnificent Mujer or Buen Hombre, we had an incredible Buen Hombre not too long ago named Juan Rosas. I don't know if you know the guy, but it was the, probably the best episode we've ever had for Buen Hombre. Um, at the very beginning, I'd like the person to kind of introduce themselves. So, Yadi, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your family and, and who is Yadi Ortiz? Yeah, so first of all, I am a mom. I am a mom of three um, very um, strong-headed children. Um, uh, they're seven, no, eight. They all turned birthdays recently. So it's eight, 13, and um, now 16 years old. So wow. I have one child at every level of education, elementary, middle, middle school, and, and high school. So it's been it's been interesting and all the different challenges that that comes with being a mom and being a professional but um i try to put being a mom first even though that's sometimes you know it's a very challenging um very challenging when you're a mom and a professional and and a humanitarian and you have to juggle all of that but yeah first of all i am a mother of three kids um uh, and so, yeah, and then I have my wonderful husband, Juan Rosas, who you have interviewed in the past. And so, yeah, that is my family. And, and um, aside from that, I mean, I am a, I'm a working person. I'm a working professional, um, working with undocumented students for a very long time. And so just that's a little recap of, of who I am and where I'm at right now. 
and you have three wonderful children. I love your children and I've gotten to know them a little bit and it's always fun to interact with them. Um, whether it's throwing the Frisbee or kidding around about baseball or <laughs> various, various activities that we've done. It's a wonderful family. And Yeti, so, so you're uh, very active with education, with the pre-health dreamers. Tell us a little bit about how you got into education to begin with. Yeah, so for me, my degree is actually in communication, right? So I grew up wanting to be a um, reporter. I actually wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to do news um, and report on you know, on, on stories about, you know, about people and just the injustices that exist all around the world, right? So that's what I went to school for. And then once I graduated, um, I was very fortunate to be hired in at a Cal State, at an institution of higher education. Um, the Cal State system is actually the largest system in the state of California with 23 campuses. So I was fortunate enough to just you know be hired and be offered a job there and through that job it was actually through the admissions office and when i got hired not not very you know short after i was asked to actually be a resident specialist so if you know the individuals that don't know what a resident specialist is is a person that actually evaluates a student's immigration status and based on that and how long they've been living in california we would actually charge the student either in-state or out-of-state tuition, right? Well, in the state of California, there's something called AB 540, which uh, came into place in 2001, which allows undocumented students and also US citizens to pay in-state tuition if they are not residents of California, right? But they had to have done um, high school at that time. Now, now the, the bill has been modified and it's expanded to cover more individuals. But back then it was you had to have had high school and, and, and graduated from high school. So I was the person that was evaluating those documents, right? And I knew about immigration. I knew about undocumented students. I knew about undocumented families, you know, just being coming from an immigrant family myself. But I did not know and did not realize the hardships that students and the families had to go through when they were undocumented to go into higher education. So back in 2006, this is when I learned about this. I learned, you know, students being, um, you know, kept from college because either counselors didn't know um, that undocumented students could go to school. Financial aid was extremely limited at that time because um, as of 2012, 11, 2012, they, you know, undocumented students now get financial aid in the state of California, but then they didn't, hmm. right? So it was a lot of maybe private scholarships or fundraising. Um, so I learned about all the different obstacles and hurdles that students, undocumented students and their families have to overcome just to go to college. And so from that, um, I actually worked um, to, to do a lot more research and what does this really mean and how can we help further. And, you know, throughout time, I was actually, um, you know, given the green light at my campus. I, I had a wonderful advisor. I had a wonderful director um, later on through the Education Opportunity Program known as EOP. And they said, you know what, Yadi, we see what, what, you're, what you're saying and let's help you push all of these things through. And so 
through all of that work, we were able to create resources on that campus for undocumented students and their families and the community as a whole. Um, we created ally networks, ally trainings, um, and actually helped in, you know, we actually established an undocumented student program on that campus. It was the fourth one at the Cal State system, fourth or fifth one at the Cal State system out of the 23 that now exist. Was that, was that at Long Beach? No, that was at Cal State San Bernardino. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you, were at, you, you were at both, right? You were at San Bernardino and at Long Beach? Yeah. So Cal State San Bernardino, actually, that's my home. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in the Inland Empire. I'm an Inland Empire girl. And so Cal State San Bernardino is where all of my education and professional background, um, that's where I grew up, basically, both education in the educational world and the professional world. And so Later on in 2017, that's when I went and tried Cal State Long Beach for a little while. I was there for like a year and a half. Um, but now the, you know, one of my big things was always wanting to go into nonprofit. I, I realized that I love helping and I love advocating. I'm a great, I'm a huge advocate for undocumented students and, you know, all students that come from underserved communities. Um, and so I really was hoping to go into the nonprofit sector so that I can use my voice in a very different way, advocate from a very different angle. You know, in higher education, you really have to strategize and, and you really have to, um, it takes a little bit longer to do a lot of the advocacy that you want to do and see things happen. So I, I really wanted to challenge myself and, and challenge institutions from a different angle. Um, ever since probably December, I think I've worked with five different schools that were denying students based on their immigration status. Um, and now they've all changed their, their admissions policies for those programs, most of them being nursing. Hmm. And, and was AB 540, was that the bill that was advocated by Marco Antonio Fireball? Yes, it was. Marco Antonio Fireball was a dear friend of mine. And uh, I, I'll never forget, rest in peace, and i never forget when he would be talking about that and how he and people like Gil Cedillo, you know, they, they get behind something mm -hmm. and they see it through sacrificing, like in the case of Marco Antonio, their lives or Gil Cedillo, his wife's life, where they're so de dedicated to it, you know, they'll make a promise to get it done and then it gets done. And it's important that we remember who are the people behind that. So uh, a shout out to Marco Antonio Fireball. Mm -hmm. He was a, a, a great man. And when you mentioned that some of the schools that you've been working with of late didn't have this um, program for undocumented students, uh, was it because of ignorance or were they just trying to not get financing for them or what was going on? Yeah, well, I think it spans from different, you know, different knowledge, different ideas, let's call it that, that individuals have, right? Some folks or some professionals don't know that laws exist that prohibit um, schools and healing art programs such as nursing from discriminating students based on their immigration status. You know, they're not aware of these laws. So one of the laws is SB 1139. That's the one that, that, um, that doesn't allow for schools, especially healing arts programs to discriminate from, you know, discriminate students based on immigration status. So, Professionals sometimes don't know this in institutions, right? You're, up, you're constantly getting new staff, you're constantly getting new faculty. So a lot of it is not being aware of what's happening. 
Um, and I do think that sometimes it's a bias, you know, it's um, through my educational career or my professional career, I've heard individuals just say, you know, we're impacted. So impacted means we have a lot more qualified applicants that well, we can bring in into our schools, right? And so if we're impacted, you know, we have to first, you know, give all the opportunity to those that are born here. Why are we bringing in students that are not born in the U.S.? Right, and, and so that, yeah, and so schools really go into that kind of survival mode of how do we bring in and how do we process all these applications? Right, so I think that's why laws like SB 1139 are so important because they, um, they keep individuals from doing that. So now it's just taking that step further and continue to educate um, professionals in higher education and let them know that that's um, number one against the law and number two, it's just ethically immoral for them to be doing that. So I think it comes from so many different, you know, I worked in admissions offices for a very long time and, 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 and um, admission staff and admission um, groups kind of do think that like how are we going to bring in all of these students right or how do we choose which ones to bring in when you have triple quadruple the amount of applicants that may be eligible you know how do we narrow that down and so a lot of schools are not holistic right a lot of schools don't bring in students who or they don't see the different backgrounds um, that students have right so they don't take into um, account the linguistic um, or the the cultural um, intelligence that some students have. They don't do all of that. They base it based on test scores, um, you know, sometimes GPA, you know, and so they're not very, not very many schools are very holistic in their admission process. Um, and so that's a shame. That's a shame. I, I hope that now with everything that we've seen with COVID-19, a lot of schools are, are taking away their admission exams because mm -hmm. there is, you know, it, it becomes so difficult to include those. And so I'm hoping that there's some type of learning curve or, or I hope there's some learning that we, we have in our higher education system when it comes to SAT scores and you know, looking at more than just the GPA. You know, of course it takes a lot more work, you know, because it's not black and white, but um, I hope COVID-19 brings a light to all of that. Yeah, so much more than the GPA. And then of course, those of us of color, you know, maybe our parents, maybe it's a one parent family. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have two or three jobs. Uh, we're taking care of our little brothers and sisters because there's nobody else home and the parents gone. We're doing our homework at, you know, two in the morning, taking the bus to school. I mean, all the challenges that people don't realize. Uh, so it's much more than the GPA. And I, and I know that you were very involved in something called the Dream um, Success Center. That, you know, tell me about that. Tell me about the Dream Success Center. What is that? How, what, how did that work? Yeah, so I actually um, helped establish the Dream Success Center at Cal State San Bernardino, which is now called the Undocumented Student Programs or the Undocumented Student Success Center um, at Cal State San Bernardino. And so, um, you know, back in 2006, let's go back again to 2006, you know, at many campuses, it was still kind of um, scary for a lot of professionals and administrators to talk about undocumented students in such a broad way 
you know, con you know, just to have those conversations and just say, okay, well, how do we help students? How do we help um, create programming for them? How to assist undocumented students, right? And so for a lot of individuals all across the state, and you still see it nationwide, right? It's still kind of a difficult conversation for folks to have, number one, because they're not informed in the topic. And then number two, for many, it feels very political, right? Like this is political. If we start admitting undocumented students or we start providing extra resources for undocumented students, it's gonna make us seem one-sided, right? And so um, not at Cal State San Bernardino, but I think just overall, I, I, I saw that. I saw that a lot of staff and administrators still had that mentality, right? Had it. Um, and so there was a lot of education that had to take place, not just at Cal State San Bernardino, but nationwide and, and statewide, right, on why this is necessary. So again, at Cal State San Bernardino, I was very excited to have such a supportive um, director and, and allies that were really able to assist in the process. And we were actually able to start, um, at that time we called it the Dream Center. Um, and that was by the like students' that. choice. Yeah, that was by the students' um, choice that we named it that. And so we actually did a call because I was meeting with students all the time and they're like, is there a club? Is there an organization on campus? And there wasn't, there wasn't one in 2006 or 2007. And so I think I, I got very tired of hearing that and not being able to provide an answer for the students. And so, Again, later on, we did a call, and that first call um, that we made, we, def we just said, hey, you know, who wants to start a club for undocumented students? 75 students showed up, 75 undocumented students showed up to our meeting. Wow. And it was just amazing, and we had such a, a great um, group of students who are very passionate and very just, you know, excited to make this happen. And through that, um, we actually created a student org. Um, all women, all women on the on the board, that those were the ones that were leading the way. Um, right. And so, and then through that, we actually um, advocated for the Dream Center. And so through that Dream Center, we were able to provide, you know, both admissions, you know, guidance and and that guidance to help students the academic side or the advising side to help students while they're in college or while they're at the university but we also extended the help out to the community right so we worked with a lot of community partners we started creating legal clinics um health you know health access you know health information for um undocumented families in regards to you know health access uh, so there was, there was a lot, and I think the most important thing was community building for the students. You know, they were finally able to get to meet each other. And so the, the center is still there. Um, there's an amazing team leading it. Um, I still visit once in a while because it's, I don't, I feel so attached to that team and to that family. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and I think now, you know, right now, presently, um, most Cal States now have either an undocumented student program or a dream center or at least somebody to go to, you know, a go-to person that's very well informed and knowledgeable of the needs of undocumented students. Well, congratulations. It is so important. And San Bernardino is very, uh, it brings back a lot of memories to me 
in 2006, because in 2006, that's when I, with Gente Unida and Border Angels, did something called Marcha Migrante, mm -hmm. where on February 2nd of 2006, we left from Friendship Park, a place very special to you as well, and we left from Friendship Park all the way to Washington, D.C. in a caravan of what became 111 cars to ask people to take to the streets and march and protest for humane immigration reform. And one of our first stops was at, in San Bernardino, but it was at UCR. It was at um, where Armando Navarro is, at, at that Riverside or, or San Bernardino. Is he in San Bernardino or Riverside? Oh, I think Armando, Dr. Armando Vasquez? No, Navarro. Navarro. It might have been Riverside, but we went to San Bernardino and we did, did an action there and we went to Riverside because we stopped in California in various locations. And I remember what we did up in that area was we placed crosses to remember the people that have died. And we've always had that tradition, uh, or I've had that tradition like others, to put the crosses, no olvidado. So we did a ceremony. Mm -hmm. And we did a ceremony in San Bernardino. We did a ceremony in Riverside. We went to four or five cities in California. And then we started working our way east to Arizona, et cetera, et cetera, to go across the country and ask people to take to the streets that spring mm -hmm. and ask for humane immigration reform. And of course, that was the spring, which now I call the immigrant spring, taking after the name of the Arab Spring, which was way later, about people marching in the streets and asking for humane immigration policies. That was the spring of 2006 when four and a half million people took to the streets and protested in support of humane immigration reform. And this year, we got to take to the streets and protest on November 3rd by going to the ballot box and voting because we're going to have the biggest election ever in our lives. And, and talking about uh, these programs through the Cal State system, I'm encouraged to, to know that now there's a new law or, or a proposal about ethnic studies, ethnic, ethnic studies being mandatory to be taught at the Cal State system. How does that work? I know it's brand new, but has that developed yet? How they're gonna initiate it, what the process is? Do you know about that? I heard about it and I read a little bit about it, Enrique, but I'm not too familiar with the background of it. I know that, um, I believe Cal State Northridge. So Cal State Northridge students are very active and very involved in, in speaking out about um, ethnic studies and, and the way it's not being taught or the way it should be taught. And they've been very powerful and very vocal. And I think um, probably a year or two years ago um, was one of their, their largest um, advocacy efforts that they did during a faculty meeting. Um, that's, as, that's as much as I know. And um, I know a lot of times faculty has, have a, has had a hard time getting resources or, um, you know, that financial, um, you know, assistance to push these classes through, these courses through. So I'm not very familiar with the bill that's coming through. And, and if it's really, um, I hope it helps. I hope it helps in the way it's meant to help. Um, and I hope that universities do um, push it through and really, really provide these, these courses, right? Because, I mean, even in an elementary, I think that's where it should start. And I know it's probably a difficult, um, you know, some folks may or may not agree with me, but I think even as children, they should start learning um, 
a lot of you know a lot of this content not not in college not in university but early on so i i really don't know if and how and when it's going to start being implemented i know sometimes it takes um it's not a super quick turnaround and there's a lot of um you know changes that are going to have to be taken in the departments you know that are going to have to teach this um you know, so I, I don't know. Um, I hope, I hope it works and I hope it's a positive move. Um, and that I'm it really does what it's supposed to accomplish, you know, accomplish what yeah. it's supposed to accomplish. I'm, a, I'm confident it'll, it'll take place as this year we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Chicano moratorium mm -hmm. and you know, the struggles that they went through, that was a generation before me that they went through to have Chicano studies, et cetera. So it happens, but you're right. I agree with you hundred percent. It should start in elementary school. When we're in elementary school, we should start seeing people that look like us. You mm -hmm. know, women that look like us, men that look like us and, and that, that are heroes, because that's going to help build who we are, you know, as we grow through life. And it's so very important. And you're doing a very, very important program. And I want to really learn more about this. Your pre-health dreamers program. All of these dreamers that are studying, I believe, to get into the field of medicine. How, tell me about it. How, how does that work? What's that all about? Yeah, so pre-health dreamers. I was so excited. I joined over a year ago um, as the executive director for the program, and, and I was just thrilled, and, and I'm so blessed to be part of this wonderful team um, who all believe in that same mission, right, and, and you know, um, advocating and, and pushing and opening doors for undocumented students, especially students that are going into these pre-health um, majors and programs, you know, in order to become doctors, physical therapists, dentists, um, you know, just so many other different um, careers that, that our students are pursuing. And so as one of the big parts of it is advocacy, right? So as I had mentioned before, we worked already with five schools, four or five schools is, since December. You know, one of the things that we do is we advocate for more progressive and non-discriminatory um, admission practices at schools, right? And so that's one of the big thing. But then the other challenge is also not just accepting the student, but make sure that they go through um, school, you know, with as much assistance as possible, right? And so that that's, you know, the holistic advising, holistic counseling, but also the financial aspect. Financial aspect is a huge component on why a lot of our students don't pursue these degrees, right? And so it's really advocating and working with schools to try to help and, and provide all of the support that's necessary for the students, right? So it's a lot of educating, a lot of training. We're actually working on a project right now um, to do a lot more training with, with schools. Right, so it's that advocacy component of it. Um, the other component of it is doing that. We have a peer mentor, peer engagement and enrichment program for undocumented students who are pursuing health, um, health degrees. And I think that is one of the most wonderful part of our job that we get to meet students and build community with our students. So we have students who are in community college all the way to already applying for medical school, or applying for their um, professional programs, right? And so last year we had around 50 students in our program. This year we hope to do the same. 
Uh, and so it is really helping them through that process, teaching them advocacy, because I think that's a very important tool for them to learn as they continue, right? Because they're not going to just hit, you know, obstacles right now through the admissions process. They're also going to hit a lot of obstacles when they're going into their professional fields. We know as professionals and undocumented professionals and professionals of color, you know, they're going to hit a lot of obstacles throughout their entire, um, you know, professional lives. So it's really training and working with them to, you know, gain those tools to be able to move forward. Um, and then we also have, um, we have our advising, we have our advocacy um, there. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a really great program. We meet a lot of students. We do a lot of empowerment training with them. Um, and one of the, the wonderful things that I've seen is, um, so there's this process called coming out of the shadows, right? And so that's kind of coming out as an undocumented person, kind of to yourself, to, to those around you. Um, and it's really a powerful um, process for many students. It's a very difficult and scary one, of course. Um, but one of the great things that I've seen is that once our students are empowered and learn the skills that they kind of need and learn how to advocate, it's very rare when I see them kind of retract, right? They just kind of keep pushing forward and doing a lot of advocacy um, and, and joining forces with other undocumented youth um, who are doing the same. And so we do a lot of that training um, with our students so that they can continue. It's an amazing program. And um, my father had wanted to be a doctor. He was born in Mexico City. He passed away seven years ago. Um, but he said that the challenge for him was the studies, the studies of, uh, you know, the dedication that you have as a, as a medical student. And so I really admire these students that are in this program that you're talking about. And the fact that, you know, they sacrifice so much not knowing if it's going to be taken away. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to Juan in the background back there, by the way, uh, trying to get some FaceTime in the mirror. I've never seen that type of FaceTime by doing it on the mirror. Usually it's like getting behind the person on the camera, but that's a good one. <laughs> I know, you should know better by now, but yeah. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't yell out some of the things he says that he likes to yell out when he's going down the stairs. I'm glad <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't slide down today. <laughs> but but uh yeah so and i know that we were working together on the possibility of uh you know you were doing the retreat and i had turned you on to a, a dear friend of mine paul chavez who's cesar chavez second oldest son him and monica they at the chavez center and and looking at doing a retreat there something that in the future i'm sure you're gonna you know still do retreats that type of inspiration getting to know somebody like you know, one of the Chavez members, like Paul Chavez, Cesar's second son, mm -hmm. or my good friend, uh, Yasser uh, Hiron, who's a medical doctor from Guatemala, who volunteered with me when I first founded Gente Unida, and we would join in protest, and him and his partner, Tatian, they're both medical doctors at UCI, Go Anteaters, uh, and then they have this program called Prime, and every year they come down to San Diego, and I would talk to them. And what was really interesting about these pre-med students was I would ask, there'd be a, most of them would be of color, but not all. But I would ask the ones of color, especially Latinos, why did you decide to get into this field? Why did you decide to be a doctor? And in their case, the majority would say something like, 
when I was little, you know, I saw the doctor come and save my grandmother's life, or I used to translate for the doctor when we go see the doctor, things like that. And then when it was the, 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 the Anglo community, not always, because they sometimes had that story, but in their case, it was different. A lot of times they would say, well, my dad's a doctor and my grandfather's a doctor and my, mm-hmm. my great grandfather. So it was kind of in their history. But what the, the one thing that was in common, what this prime program was all about, as for them to give back. Now that they're gonna become doctors, not to forget these communities, to go back into these communities that need the doctors the most. And that's what, what you're doing with this program is so important because they're meeting other people like themselves. They're meeting people that are like themselves that have already made it. And they're meeting uh, inspirational people like we were talking about at the beginning. Meeting those inspirational people when you're in grammar school by reading about them in a book you know, that says, I can make it, look at this person. I didn't realize so-and-so was a, a Latina or a Latino. We gotta hear those stories. And in this case, the program you have, they get to meet these people. Do you right. have these students in your program, do you have them now go out into the field and do some of their, their work to get to know, like, like your husband and you both are involved with our program for the day laborers. Do you have them go out and do things like that where they go out into the field and maybe put the practice? I know they can't do everything, they're not doctors yet, but they can do some stuff. So this year, we're actually incorporating that into our peer mentor program, into our peer engagement enrichment program, for them to actually reach out um, to the younger students, actually. To the younger students, um, right now we're working on a high school project. We're working on a high school project, a community college project, a post-baccalaureate project, um, and a project with professionals as well. And so right now, um, we are hoping that this year we can connect our... Um, current, um, our current participants of our peer mentor program with the younger students, with the high school students, right? To even, to even move them forward. And so, and a lot of our alumni, so a lot of our mentors that have graduated from our program are actually now, um, around 200 of them are now um, either in the ending of their professional program or already practicing professionals. So we're constantly connecting them to our current um, cohort of students for them to kind of see that experience. And, and one of the big things is, you know, we're looking to have a shortage of physicians in the near future. You know? And I was gonna say, cause you mentioned something that's very important and something that you've been active in, the mentorship. You, when you've acted as a mentor, how important is that to them? Oh, yeah. Having somebody that they can talk to, like you, for example, having them talk to you and you can tell them, I've, been going, I've gone through this, I've go- I understand, I know what you're talking about. That is so critical to their development. Yeah. One of the most difficult things for our students, and, and this is why it's a, so education and higher education is such a challenge um, mentally there's a mental health component to it right one of the big challenges is having to explain again and again what undocumented means what being a daca recipient means what being a tps you know recipient means so having to explain all of this where you know how you know and then sometimes our students from professionals in education get very um uncomfortable questions you know, thrown at them. And so this is a very, admissions process for undocumented individuals is a very draining process sometimes. 
Um, so yes, it feels, I think it, it, it does take a little bit of that weight off when, when undocumented individuals and students are able to connect with somebody that they don't have to explain themselves to. Right. Right. And, and you just know and you understand and you get it. Now let's move forward and advocate and, and grow stronger and, and, you know, and empower and, and get that empowerment. Yes, very important. And we started off talking about remembering people that have gone before us that we can't forget their legacy. Mm -hmm. Not only does it go for just people, but also places. And uh, this coming year, of course, a big celebration of Friendship Park, someplace that's been very special to so many of us. And I always think about the two people that were so instrumental in the binational masses and Posadas y Fronteras. And that was my dear, dear friend that passed away about 10 years ago, Roberto Martinez, who was the founder and co-founder of the Posadas and Friar uh, Ed, that they started doing the Posadas and the binational masses. So it's important to remember who these people are and to continue, you know, developing these programs, whether it's uh, when I've been able to open the door of hope for people to hug or, or Jim Brown's vision of this international park. Let's move forward on these ideas. Let's move forward, but not forget where they came from or what, what came before us, what came before me and so on and so on. And so forth. it is so important. So there's going to be a lot of it, exciting activities. We're working on some right now. Uh, you know, recently we had a friend of ours from Tijuana who lives in Berlin. He's an artist and he wants to do things. We're working on concerts that we've done in the past. So let's continue in this time of COVID, not only to, you know, we know we're, we're in a really challenging time, but we know that we will dance again, that we will sing again. And it's so important that we get out there and we vote. We vote. And those are the students that are in your program that can't vote, but they know people that can vote. You know, get them to vote. Because this will be the most important election ever in our lifetimes. And, the, and, and a lot of these programs that we've been talking about hinge on what happens November 3rd. You know, it, it could go one way or the other. One, in one way, it'll shut down everything. And the other one, it'll let it flourish and continue with these programs. But it's really up to us. We ourselves can be the change we want to see in the world. And you know what, and again, documented students and undocumented individuals cannot vote. Um, but just like you said, they may know somebody. So just by, by you know, sharing your views or letting them know how, you know, just policies affect you to somebody that might change their perspective on how they vote. Um, you know, story sharing is very impactful. And another thing, it, you know, individuals who are undocumented are always saying, you know, I don't feel like I really have a voice because I can't vote. One way that they can have a voice is by submitting the census. So the yes, census is a huge thing that we're trying to push through right now. And there's fears, you know, is my immigration status going to be um, shared? And it doesn't, it's not. And so I think I went through a training. This is not information that I, I, I know. It's something that I learned, but um, they put it into perspective. So they, they basically said, if you have a family of four and you put that for each family member, you just brought in four, four, $1,000 into the community. So it's wow. a good, you know, for a family of four, that's $4,000 that you brought into your community for schools, for resources. So if, if undocumented individuals feel that way, the census is another way for you to make your voice heard and to make changes in your community. Um, you know, a lot of times, and you'll see a lot of our institutions or, or schools are, you know, 
the low income schools, you know, you, you don't have the resources. The kids are not getting those iPads that, that other kids are getting in, in, in those high income communities, right? And so this is one of the reasons why, because the money is not being brought in. Yes. you know because we don't do the census so this is a great way for the undocumented community to kind of bring in that resource bring in that money make their voice heard um through the census and it's yeah right now so if you haven't done it do it now exactly and it, as we're getting to the end here is there a message that you would like to give to the students that are in your program or to future students that are thinking about getting into the field of medicine and they're undocumented. Is there some sort of a message, encouraging words you would like to share with them? Yes, they are needed. They are so needed in the health profession, um, even now, but I think even more in the near future, we're gonna have a shortage of physicians. We're gonna have a shortage of physicians, um, of folks that come from underrepresented communities. We're gonna have a shortage of physicians and medical or health professionals who, lack that um, cultural awareness, that lack um, the language, the knowing more than one or, you know, knowing various languages, we're gonna have a lack or, you know, a gap. So undocumented students have all of that. You know, they have the cultural awareness, they're bilingual, sometimes trilingual, sometimes more. Um, they have, you know, gone through so many obstacles and through those obstacles, they've learned so many skills. All of those skills are vital in the health community or in the health professions. And so they're needed. It's necessary for them to keep pushing forward um, and to keep connecting and looking for those resources because you are vital to our country. Well, we're going to make sure that uh, if you could share the links and so forth with Sarah, so we could put them on the podcast and people would know where to look for those resources. And one final question that I ask people uh, ever since I used to have a radio show 20 years ago, um, to Yadira Ortiz, what is love? What is love? Well, I think the way I practice love, it's, a, it's something you have to practice, right? Um, fighting passionately for what you believe in fighting very passionate for those that you you care about and fighting passionately for what you believe in and, and for for things to work yes. you know, for things to progress and move forward so I think my my the way I show my love is through like advocacy um, both for my family and for for the community well said so it's an action not just a word Mm -hmm. And Yadira Ortiz practices that action every day. So thank you very much for the work that you're doing, for the great example that you set to all of us. On behalf of Sarah Vela, our producer, Enrique Morones, your host, and everybody here at Gente Unida and Magnificent Mujer, muchísimas gracias. And uh, we want you to continue with your wonderful work, your wonderful family, because we know that with amor, si se puede. And you can see this podcast and all the regular podcast channels, including MagnificentMujer.org. Muchas gracias, Yadi. Saludos a tu familia. Y hay que votar el 3 de noviembre. Let's get out the vote November 3rd. Gracias y si se puede. Thank you, Enrique. Thank you, Sarah. Gracias. <laughs>